Now, uh, let me give you some background, okay? 1912, here's how the story goes at least. In 1912, the President of the United States was attending a Washington Senator's baseball game. Now, the President in 1912 was William Howard Taft, and he was a big fella, okay? He was upwards of six feet tall, which, you know, they didn't see as much of that in those days as we do in these days. But he also weighed about 354 pounds. He was a big guy. He'd been uh, enjoying the game, but been there quite a while. And um, in the middle of the seventh inning, he gets up because he's kind of tired to take a stretch. Well, everybody around him on seeing the President of the United States stand, they did the same thing. And soon everybody in the ballpark was standing up. Thus began a tradition still observed at baseball games yet today, the seventh inning stretch. Did you know that? Okay. A big man who happens to be the president stands to stretch, so everybody else does. And that starts a tradition. All right. He had no intention of creating a tradition. All he wanted to do was stretch. Now, the same is true of a woman in our lesson for today. She didn't know she was starting a tradition. She didn't know that you and I'd be talking about her later, much, much later. She just did what she did, motivated by love, and it went down in history. And it started something. Now, the word Easter, and by the way, there will be no Sunday school here next week, there's, uh, you know, about every 15 minutes for two days, I think there's, there's a church service somewhere here. So um, pick one and serve at one or whatever. But um, so I won't get to talk to you on Easter Sunday, but uh, we talked a little bit about this last week. Easter is actually, a, is taken from a pagan center celebration, but uh, it took from it in, in a way that, um, that made it good and, and holy and better. Uh, unlike in our day, the world takes from our religious celebrations and makes them kind of banal and not good, okay? Uh, so the world, uh, the, the Christian world, took something from the world and made it good. Doesn't that sound like the right direction to go? Um, Paschal, um, the word Paschal is a biblical word. Paul uses it a time or two talking about Jesus as our Paschal lamb. If you want to talk about, well, I'm not going to Easter services. I'm going to, to a Paschal celebration this, this coming week. That would fit as well if, you, if Easter bothers you for some reason or not. Now, so today is Palm Sunday, the day we remember Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Um, and this event occurs early in the time frame of what has come to be called Passion Week uh, or the Paschal Week or celebration. So uh, it's interesting that more that we've been studying Matthew's gospel, more than a third of Matthew's gospel really covers this last week of Jesus' earthly life um, before the cross and the empty tomb. Our lesson for today is going to take us about midway into the week, 
after Jesus and a lot of other people have arrived in Jerusalem for the Feast of the Passover. And um, in particular, we'll make references to Thursday, which is uh, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread that um, you see them celebrate in the upper room. Now, we're going to also look at some attitudes and actions of the Jewish ruling leaders. Now, it, it'll kind of begin this chapter with that. Um, um, the beginning of this council was of the body of elders, um, we think, was when the exiles re returned from exile in uh, the 500s, 536 or so B.C., we can read about that in Ezra. So it can be traced back to the priests and the nobles and the rulers in Nehemiah's day. The key figure among them was Zerubbabel, who could trace his line back to David as king, but there really wasn't a king. Uh, in fact, Zerubbabel spent most of his life trying to stay out of Terubbabel. <laughs> thought you might want to know that. He was from David's royal line, but there really wasn't a king. His authority was certainly not that of a king. So as the royal authority of the house of David faded away, the priesthood gained more and more power. The high priest came, became, in effect, the head of state in the time between the Old and the New Testaments. Um, eventually, the high priesthood was auctioned. You could no longer trace the high priesthood back to Aaron and the tribe of Levi. It had been sold to the highest bidder by some politician. And uh, literally, in, around the time of Jesus' birth and, and death, there were um, dozens of high priests uh, that kind of came rapid fire in that time. The council's power was sharply curtailed by Herod when he began to rule from Jerusalem in 37 B.C. as this client king of Rome. And then after he died, um, uh, the council again increased with power. And that's kind of what we see in our New Testament, uh, at least towards the end of the, New, of the Gospels. Council membership numbered 70 plus the high priest for a total of 71. The NIV usually refers to this council. Some of the uh, modern translations refers to this council as the Sanhedrin or the Sanhedrin. Uh, this designation is just literally a transliteration of the underlying Greek word, which occurs 22 times in the, in the New Testament. Um, so just like we just say apostle, just like it is in the Greek, we say uh, Christ, just like it is in the Greek. We say baptism, just like it is in the Greek, we say Sanhedrin, just like it was in the Greek. Just a name for this ruling body of 70 or 71. Now that's kind of the background. We're going to see some intrigue taking place that we're going to celebrate and, um, and, and be really close to this week. John, can I get you to read, would you mind to read from Matthew 26, read the first five verses. Okay, now, 
when it refers to at the edge of chapter 26, when Jesus had finished all these words or all these things. See that there in your first verse? What that's talking about is really the previous two chapters or so where Jesus is teaching them about um, some things to come. Uh, this is known in some circles, um, in, in um, technical circles, I guess, or, or biblical theological circles as the Olivet Discourse. And I believe as I read it, it has to, it's making some prediction of what's going to happen fairly soon and some other things that are going to happen at the end of time or when, or when Jesus returns. Okay, So as you read chapter 24 and 25, you see all of those kinds of things uh, there. So it refers to, it's a discourse about the near and distant future. Okay, The near and the distant future. Now there's some... There's some debate over that, so don't, don't throw me out and brand me as a heretic yet. Just read it and realize that I think some of it's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, and some of it's talking about the end of time. Um, so, I, at least in my interpretation, it's talking about the near and the distant future. And uh, when they're talking here in verse 2, when the, the uh, chief priests and the elders, when this ruling council is getting together in verse, in verse uh, 2 and 3, um, um, uh, and four here, uh, realize that we're talking about probably Tuesday of the last week. Because he says, okay, I'm going to be handed over to them in a couple of days. Now, the day thing is kind of hard to navigate yourself around with. I could give you about two dozen different scriptures that will help you navigate what happened on what day. I'm kind of fascinated with that, actually, of what happened on what day of Jesus last week. Uh, before the cross and the empty tomb. But it sounds like he's saying um, in two days would be Thursday when he was arrested. So this is probably Tuesday when they're meeting, uh, trying to come up with this plot. Now, of interest, I think, is that um, of interest here um, uh, is um, uh, this meeting that they're going to have that kind of begins to be talked about here in verse 3 and 4 and 5. Now, what you and I need to realize, I think, uh, traditionally at least, from, from a little bit of my study in terms of, of what has happened over the years, is Holy Week was an early observance in the years following when all this happened. Holy Week began to be celebrated in and around Jerusalem by the church wanting to celebrate it when they could where it actually happened, okay? So they would, a lot of the things that we're going to reenact this week, Palm Sunday included, uh, Monday, Thursday included, Good Friday, were originally enacted in the precincts in and around Jerusalem as a, as a memory, a touch point, a memory stone for what happened here that was all important, okay? So, you're going to kind of catch some of this, and that's another reason why uh, I've kind of been interested in kind of what happened on what days. Now, the scene changes in verse 3, okay? Jesus has been talking to them. He says, in two days, I'm going to be arrested and crucified, okay? Now, and so the scene changes by verse 3, and of interest, I think, is the fact that this group was meeting at night, okay? Now, uh, John did a good job of, of reading through the names here. Uh, the high priest from A.D. about 6 to 15, so a very long time in context, 
was a high priest, a very connected uh, man, a very intriguing man by the name of Annas. He installs his son-in-law, Caiaphas, at the end of his term, but he's still kind of pulling the strings for Caiaphas. You heard, uh, you heard John read his name a little bit. He was his puppet and he was his son-in-law. Okay? Now, it's interesting to me, two things here, that they met in his home. Okay? Why do you think so? Why do you think they met in his home? A little more clandestine there than in the temple precincts. They didn't meet in the temple because I think of some intrigue and also because it wasn't legal to have a meeting in the temple at night. Okay, Normally this group would have convened in the temple, but they couldn't do that here. They can't do it. Somebody go to John 3 and read verse 19 and 20. I think it's interesting that Jesus calls them out on this right after he meets Nicodemus in chapter 3, uh, actually. And Nicodemus was one of the 70. All right? John 3, verse 19 and 20. What does he say? Somebody? Don't you know that if Jesus knew what was going on in Caiaphas' back room at his house, this certainly comes out. Men love the darkness because their deeds are evil. He's already said it. Maybe as much as a year and a half before. So they're kind of living this out here. It's important for you and I to kind of think about this, that they're meeting at night. Okay? Now, Jesus has already spoken judgment on uh, these leaders. He's been doing that for a time. Now, I want, we're going to go back, if you'll kind of hold your finger there, we're going to go back to 21 here in just a second because he speaks judgment. And he tells a parable. So in my Bible, you can just turn back two pages. Yours is probably similar to that. Turn back to the left about two pages. I want you to listen to a few things that he says. I'm going to start with verse 23. From chapter 21, when Jesus entered, when he entered the temple, the chief priests, the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Okay. Jump down to 38. Still in chapter 21. He's telling a story. And he says, when the vine growers saw the sun, he tells the story of a vine owner, a landowner who had, lent out his vineyard. When the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? He's telling this story. They know who he's talking about. Look, one more little passage here. Let's go to uh, verse, verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. Okay? He's already called them out on this. So, he's been speaking judgment on them. Now, it's interesting to me that history tells us that there have been 30 attempts, more than 30 attempts to kill a sitting and former president or president-elect in the U.S. 
Four such attempts have succeeded. Uh, some assassination attempts are attributable to mental instability. But historians generally agree that most such attempts have been politically motivated. Such motivations may include a perception that the target's a threat to vested interests of some person. The Bible's really clear about this, about the mental state and the motivation of these religious leaders. This was methodical, weighing out the best way to carry out the plan, and it was designed to eliminate a threat to their vested interests. And we're talking about the innocent Son of God here. Okay, so, he's already called them out, spoken judgment on them, but as they talk in verse 5, they decide, okay, but we got to be careful how we do this, because they fear the crowd. Okay, I may not get this exactly right, but, but bear with me for a minute. Jerusalem in those days was, um, uh, had a population of something like 80,000 on a good day, okay? During Passover week, it could swell as much as to two and a half million. Okay? Uh, in fact, there's some writing that, that you can read that would talk about how many lambs and goats were slaughtered during this week. There would be as many as 80,000 of just them representing, uh, you know, 10 or 12 or 15 or 20 uh, family members. So, you can kind of do the math yourself. So there's a lot of people there. And if you, if you remember the politics of the day, Caiaphas and Annas, so, so Caiaphas, the son-in-law of Annas, who's really, really uh, pulling the strings, that their number one um, uh, goal in life, besides a holding on their position, was to make sure not to cause any, any upsetting of the apple cart or the Romans will come in and do something and take it away from them and give it to somebody else. So they don't want to make any waves if they can keep from it. And so they say what they say here in verse 5. They fear the crowd. All right, I want us to go on. John, can I come back to you? You read 6 down to 13. No more, more beautiful story in all of literature, I believe. Now, I told you that you kind of, we kind of need to go back and forth from here to John 12. Would somebody be my John 12 expert? We're going to catch a verse or two of it here and there. Brad, do you mind to go to John 12? you mind to go to John 12? Uh, I'm going to have you in just a minute read. Ver in fact, do it now. Read verse 1 and 2 of John 12. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with 
Okay, now, catch this, all right? Another scene change. We've had two already. Another scene change. Where are they now? Bethany. They're in Bethany, which is a bedroom community of Jerusalem, okay? Just a couple miles away, all right? But whose home are they in? Interesting, isn't it? Okay, so there are four people that are that are of note here that we probably ought to catch. All right. Um, uh, first of all, uh, by the way, let's let's set the time. Also, this says it's six days before the Passover. So if Passover was this coming Thursday, then this would have been the weekend before sometime. All right. Okay. So um, again, according to how you count days. All right. So this would have been before the triumphal entry. Okay, before the first Palm Sunday, if I'm, if I'm kind of calculating that right. Okay, and they're at the home of a guy that the Bible identifies here as Simon the leper. Now, I need to correct that. Okay, I put some verses in here about how many lepers Jesus uh, healed during his time. Don't you know that Simon was no longer a leper? In fact, you know, in fact, if... He met somebody new, and Joe said, said, I want to introduce you to my friend Steve the leper. I would quickly say, no, I'm an ex-leper. <laughs> kind of important in the day, wasn't it? Because you couldn't be around me if I was a leper, all right? So he's going to say, uh, no, sorry, I'm Simon the uh, former leper, okay? In, uh, in uh, rock and roll uh, parlance, this is the artist formerly known as Simon the leper, okay? Now, if you're a Prince fan, you, you caught that. All right, so they're in Simon's house, which, by the way, at one point, he's, I think this is interesting. At one point, he's called Simon the Pharisee. I wonder which was harder to heal, leprosy or Phariseeism. Right, just think about that for a second. I know what Marty would say. But he's been healed of both, I think. And Jesus is resting before a week that he knows is going to be a buzzsaw, unlike any other in history. And he's with Simon and his kids. You ready? Mary, Martha. Who's the other one? Who's the brother? Lazarus. What kind of claim to fame does he have? The formerly dead Lazarus. Yeah, you're right, Ron. Don't you know that he's kind of a big deal? In fact, it kind of makes me wonder if, if the conversation around dinner had more to do with Lazarus than even Jesus. He had become a real local personality because he did three days in a tomb, okay? All right? And so Lazarus is there, Mary and Martha, about whom we've, you've read, we've read quite a bit. Um, all right, now... Um, Brad, you read one and two. Well, I'm going to get you to three in just a minute. Now, so the host, is gather, the host of this gathering was a former leper. And the woman in our story in Matthew 26 is not named, but she's named in John 12, verse 3. Brad, you want to go there for us? Okay, now, so uh, John gives us some identification here that, that Matthew doesn't give us for one reason or another. This was Mary, the sister of Lazarus, the daughter 
of Simon, the former leper, the sister of Martha, okay? And she has in her possession a, uh, a bottle or a jar of what, what one of the writers at least calls nard. Sometimes it's called costly nard, all right? It is, uh, and according to the words used in Greek, um, probably something like 12 fluid ounces. How big of a jar would this be? Cup and a half. Ooh. That's a lot of nard. <laughs> Cup and a half of nard. Okay. Um, it is imported from Indi India and very expensive because of that. All right. And it's very pungent in a good way. We'll talk about that in just a minute, too. Now, um, it is more than enough. So if it's a pint and a half, uh, a cup and a half, it's more than enough to anoint the Savior's head. And so what does she do with the rest of it? She washes his feet. What a deal. What a beautiful thing. And he's going to call it out as being beautiful. So... Um, uh, she is not named in our story, but she's named elsewhere. Okay, now, why were the disciples indignant? I've got to do a little bit of background work on this to catch it. Go with me to Mark 10, okay? Go to Mark 10. There's some other places we can go, but Mark 10 get, gets us there pretty quick. Just to the right, Mark 10. Somebody read verse 41 from Mark 10. Okay, James and John had asked for, um, actually, Karen, go to 45 too, will you? You got it? Yeah. 1045. Okay, now, um, they were already indignant because two of the 12... Uh, had asked, okay, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, uh, I want to be the big daddy rabbit, and he wants to be the second in command daddy rabbit. Okay, I want to be. We want to be on your left and your right. And Jesus is marching toward Jerusalem, and he corrects them. You heard what Karen read. Now wait a minute. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve, and that's what you ought to be doing. And he called, kind of calls him out on this. Well. And at the, at the end of all that conversation, the other 10 are kind of like, who do these guys think they are? They're already indignant. So this thing that happens in Simon the former leper's home makes them even more indignant. All right. Uh, they're going to hide behind um, the fact that it was costly. And they're going to basically, you know, uh, fold their arms and say, Huh. How stinking wasteful. Got to put yourself in that place for just a minute, Joe. Nard today is two ounces for 155 bucks. Two ounces for 155 bucks. So now, now we're going to give some, some um, numbers here in a minute, but it's still pretty expensive. So if this was 12 to 16 ounces, that's a lot of money. Okay. Now, I think it was probably even more costly than that in some, some ways. So in verse 9, 
it gives us the detail, and I gave you a couple of passages here. Uh, Brad, you still in John 12? Read verse 5. Okay, gives us that kind of the idea is and in other places, the idea that uh, it was worth um, uh, 300 denarii, it says in one place, or 200 denarii, it says in another place. The idea of a denarius, I put a reference here to chapter 20 in, verse, in, in uh, the book of John, where if you remember, the guys were harvesting for a day and each of them was paid a denarius for a day's wage. So multiply that by 300, etc. And you get, if this was worth, this was worth a year's pay. Wow. Uh, something like that. Um, um, it is um, particularly, um, uh, particularly costly. That's the word that, that I want you to put here. It was at a really high price. Now, for centuries, women have known the scent of the perfume they wear can enter a room before they do. Called what? Called the vapor trail. I like that. I, I think of airplanes when I think of a vapor trail. Uh, uh, I was studying at 6.30, and somebody arrived, arrived ahead of her in my study room this morning. It was wonderful. It was like, oh, she's, I don't see her yet, but I know she's here. Okay. Now, when I do that, it's not nearly so pleasant. Okay. It's like, go take a shower, honey. All right. But it's just, isn't it wonderful, the beauty of a woman, not only physical attractiveness, but the scent. Now, let me, let me give you a couple of things here. Uh, there is a... a, a Expensive cologne called Poivre by Caron that is about, uh, it, it's in a jewel encrusted bottle with a gold trim. Two ounces of it costs two grand. Okay. Ralph Lauren makes a, a perfume called Notorious that can only be bought from Harrods in London. And they say it's the perfect scent for the Christmas holidays at $35.40 a bottle. That's not $35.40, it's $3,540 a bottle, all right? Uh, topping the list is a, a, a perfume called Imperial Majesty by Clive Christian. It's in a dazzling bottle that's embedded with white diamonds, and it, you, it, it is uh, uh, $215,000 a bottle, and they've only ever made 20 of them, so that makes it even worth more than that. So what she did was to spill intentionally at least a year's pay and it made the place smell incredible. Look at verse 10. Again, you may want to brand me a heretic here. I've never caught this before. Read verse 10 to yourself. I want you to catch what's happening here. This is Mary. Remember, this is the Mary that when, uh, when they were reclining at another time, you remember Martha calls Mary out, wants the Savior to correct her because she's not doing enough work. She's listening. Remember that one? Okay. That's this girl and her older, or something, sister, Martha. 
What I believe, look at verse 10. I'm going to read it to you. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she's done a good deed to me. You know what I think? I think Mary's the only one that hurt him. I really do. I think Mary recognizes what they missed. He's talking about his death and burial. I think there's enough evidence to, to indicate that the disciples really didn't catch that. But Mary did. And, this is a, and he's going to say, this is part of the anointing ritual for my burial. She recognizes what they have not. They're still in Mark 10. I really think I could be his right-hand man. I really think I could be his left-hand man. And the other 10 saying, you jerks. I think they're still there. And Mary has heard him say, a few more days. I'm not going to be with you much longer. And she's overwhelmed by that thought. Brad? Is this the first time he had ever made vague reference to it in front of the He's done it at least three times before. Done it, he's done it throughout their ministry. He's done it throughout his ministry. And they've never caught it, I don't think, Brad. And here we are, what, six days before Passover. And they still don't. But the girl does. And she responds to it. Okay, now, he says something to them. And by the way, it's a, I, I looked it up. It's a direct quote, more or less, from Deuteronomy 15, from, from the law of Moses. He says something pretty interesting in verse 11. What does he say? You're always going to have the poor, but you're not always going to have me. By the way, uh, Deuteronomy uh, 15, uh, 11, really, is, this is almost a direct quote from it. Um, it's the idea that poverty is a consequence of a really broken world. He's going to say in other places, um, I, would, I, would, I was sick or I was hungry and you fed me. He's, he's very interested in that. Chapter 25 talks about that. But he's also going to say, look at the second half of verse 11. He's going to say, I'm going to tell you guys, right now is the time for extravagance. And it's the only time you're going to have. I'm not going to be here much longer. And she got it right. Now is the time for extravagance. This anointing is unique. Interesting to me that he's going to say in verse 12 that this is an anointing for my burial. I don't think they still caught it except for her. But I do remember this. Look at, uh, Brad, you still close to John 12? Go to 11.39, John 11.39. Remember their brother who was there, hopefully smelled a little better on this occasion. All right? What happened in 11.39 when he was called out of the tomb, when he was getting ready to be called out of the tomb by Jesus, what does the sister say? Yea, verily, he stinketh, it says in the King James, I think. 
they remember what Lazarus smelled like. I think. Mary remembers that. This anointing is so that won't happen. By the way, you remember they went to anoint him with spices on the first day of the week? They didn't need to do that either, did they? He was already out of there. So, I think this unique anointing, um, you know, they remember their brother smelled worse than boy. You know what I'm talking about? We got two little boys that we hang out with. And when they're playing, they smell like boy. There's a smell. Whew. They smell worse than locker room. Okay? Louise, you know it. You know? It's, it's wet hair and dog smell. You know what I mean? Yeah. This is worse than that. So Jesus says, this story is going to be told for a long time. How long? How long? If then, I think forever, if then was about AD 30, and we just told it at least 1,999 years or so, okay, could we round it to 2,000? And for however long we're going to need to tell it, we're going to tell it. And it may be told in heaven. Now, I've got to tell you, I think this week in, in, uh, in church life is all about extravagance. You're, you're going to see this church spend lots and lots of money this week. Don't let that bend you out of shape. This week is all about extravagance. But don't miss it. It's about his extravagance. Every drop of blood spent was priceless. It's about his extravagance. Whatever we do in response is just a token. The flowers, the expense is what Jesus would call, I think, a beautiful thing. So here's, what I'm gonna, here's my advice to you for the week. Go out of your way to remember this week. Do you suppose that by Friday night, they walked back into Simon's house do you suppose Simon said, I still smell that in here. It's still here. Even though he is not. Do you suppose? Remember me. Do you suppose a month later that the scent still lingers? What I'm asking you to do is to do whatever you've got to do this week. Whatever it costs uh, whatever inconvenience to go out of your way to remember what he did for you. Remember his extravagance. Whatever it takes.